if you'll stand for the reading of God's word, um, Ashrita is going to read for us this morning. So if you want to come on up here, she's got a microphone. Perfect. Um, she is going to read for us from Galatians 4, verses 21 through 31. Good morning and happy Mother's Day. Galatians 4, 21 to 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Amen. Amen. Let's give her a hand. And uh, if you'll stay standing, I will uh, pray for us as we jump in this morning. Father, um, God, I pray that you would just breathe through your word. Um, I have nothing to add to it. I have nothing to offer these folks. Um, God, none of my words are inspired or inerrant. God, the only words that come out of my mouth that are inspired by God are the ones that you've written. Um, so God, I pray that you would just help us to be diligent um, to search your word. Um, God, that your spirit would be um, faithful as you promise that it always does, that your word will not return void, that your spirit who wrote this word and your spirit that is in the believer, um, God, will uh, illumine the truth to us. Um, God, help us to see the gospel in this text. And God, we pray um, that you would further your mission um, advance your kingdom during these next few minutes. Um, God, that those who might have walked in here this morning as children of the slave woman would walk out of here children of the free woman. God, that is nothing they have to do to change that status. It's a gift they receive in the gospel. So God, help us to see that today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we've been walking through the book of Galatians, and if you've been in and out, or maybe you're a guest and this is your first week, uh, we have been talking about um, faith and works. We have been talking about the law and the promise, um, the law and grace. Uh, that is what the book of Galatians is about entirely. It is specifically about how is man made right before God? Do they have to earn it? Do they work for it? Is it a, a gift of works? Is it a gift of grace? Is it faith plus works? How does the law interact with faith? And this might be the question that some of you wrestle with often because maybe you've been in a debate with someone or you've been in a conversation with someone and you're trying to tell them about the Bible and they hold up this second half of the Bible and they're like, you tell me that you can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, but what about all this? And if you're listening to the podcast, I'm holding up two thirds of my Bible, which is the Old Testament. What about all these rules, right? Don't tell me how to live my life if you're gonna eat shrimp. And the Old Testament says, don't eat shellfish. What are you doing there? 
You're undermining your own Bible. And you're like, oh, can I get a verdict on like, do we still do this? Do we not do this? Like, can someone help me? And they're like, and you got tattoos. And it says, don't have tattoos. And some of you are like, I thought that was a requirement to be on the worship team. And like, what do we do with all these things, right? What do we do with the law? In fact, Paul actually says that. He says, why then the law? And what we've learned, what's beautiful about the book of Galatians is the more we've learned about the gospel, the more we've actually learned about the law. And Paul has told us, and scripture tells us, that the law is good, that we're not abandoning the law, we're not unhitching from the law, that the law uh, was meant for the good of God's people, but the law was given to a specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose. And the law was given to the ethnic nation of Israel, God's chosen people. He didn't choose them because they earned it. He didn't choose them because they deserved it. In fact, he said the opposite, that you don't. He says, I love you just because I love you. And I choose you because I love you. And he gave them a law to, um, there's, there's kind of three aspects of the law. There's the civil part of the law, there's the ceremonial part of the law, and there's the moral part of the law. But he gave them the law for their own good, to govern them as a nation, civilly, so that they would love one another. Jesus was asked, what is the summary of the law? What's the most important commandments in the law? And what does he say? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He quotes Deuteronomy and Leviticus from the law. But just like any parent, you can't just look at your children and say, hey, here's the one rule. Love one another. Because we don't know how to do that, do we? And you gotta, okay, loving them means stop like putting stuff in their face and suffocating them and stop taking things from them, right? We need a lot more rules than just love one another. And God gave his people, his chosen nation, the law to govern them civilly so that they would take care of one another and, and share with one another and, and um, make things right when they've wronged one another and leave some of the crops on the end of their field so that the poor could even flourish in this society. It was meant to be a society where, to be honest, the watching world would look at the wisdom of God worked out amongst the people and go, wow, I'm amazed at this society where people love one another and take care of one another. The problem was never the law, the problem was the people. The closest we get to this is in 1 Kings chapter 10 where the queen of Sheba comes to Solomon under Solomon's reign and it says she saw the wisdom of Solomon. She saw that his people were happy and their servants were happy and everyone was happy and it says that literally it took her breath away. And she says, wow, the wisdom of God and she glorifies God when she sees the law of God worked out in the people, that it was meant for their flourishing. So many people go, man, the, the, all these rules, they're so oppressive. And if you look at the 10 commandments, the first rule is what? To rest, right? Man, God's so oppressive. Hey, here's rule number one, take a day off. And not just you, all your workers and all your animals, give them a day off. Remember who I am and what I've done. And we see all throughout the Old Testament that the blessing, that salvation, the deliverance comes before the law. It was never given to be a ladder to save, it was given um, to bring liberty and freedom. James actually describes the law as the perfect law that gives freedom. It was meant to help a society flourish. The problem was never the law. The problem was the people. The problem was sin deep within us. So that's the civic part of the law. It was given to literally the ethnic nation of Israel to govern them so that the watching world would see that, hey, they belong to Yahweh, the one God, the one true God. And they would see how they interact with one another and how they have peace in their relationships and in their city. And it was meant to be an arrow pointing up to God so that any foreigner would come and say, hey, I wanna be a part of that. I want what you have. And they said, let me show you where it comes from. 
We didn't create this on our own. We didn't do this on our own. It's a gift of God when we follow his precepts. That's the civic part of the law. But because humanity could never obey the law, there is also a ceremonial part of the law, which was to cleanse the people. It was, it's the book of Leviticus. It's all of the, the, the sacrifices that need to be made to atone for their inability to obey the law. And some of you are going, okay, well, why aren't we? You know, why isn't Parker getting up every week with a goat and, you know, shedding blood and all those kind of things? Why? Because that part of the law has been fulfilled. Scripture tells us that all of those um, ceremonies and sacrifices were just signs pointing to the substance. It was a shadow pointing to the real thing, the once and for all final sacrifice in Jesus Christ. So do we still obey the civic law about... um, you know, shellfish and what's clean and unclean and all that. No, we don't obey those anymore. In fact, that's the, that's the premise of 1 Corinthians. That's the premise of Galatians is you're set free from those things. Those were specifically given for the ethnic people of God. But all of those are now, um, the, the people of God is not just the nation of Israel. God is making a people for himself that is of all people and all nations and all tribes and all tongues. And we're not under the Mosaic law. We're under the law of Christ. So we're set free from those things. Ceremonial laws, we're not under those anymore. Why? Because the once and for all sacrifice has come. But what do we do with the moral law? We obey it. Why? Because Jesus showed up on the scene and and he not only spoke about the moral law, but in a way he kind of raised it. And I, I wouldn't say he raised it. He just got us to the original intent of the law that it wasn't just to restrict our hand, that it was about our hearts. Jesus said, it's, you know, it's great that you haven't physically committed adultery. But I say, if you look at another woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. He was getting to the heart of the law because rules can restrict our hands, but they can't change our hearts. And Jesus came and in a way, he hyper-focused on the moral law. So now we, we, we love the law. Paul says it was a tutor. It was not just meant for the flourishing of God's people, that it was meant to show us that we can never be good enough. It was meant to to grab us by the hand as a teacher, as a tutor, and walk us to the cross. That the more you read the Old Testament, the more you see that the people of God can't do this. Imagine trying to do a quiet time in the book of Judges, and you see that these people are, by the end of Judges, they're taking people and cutting them up and mailing all sorts of parts to different people. And you're like, what is this? And the more you read the Old Testament, the more you go, wow, there's something wrong with us. We need a savior. It was never meant to be a ladder for us to climb. It was meant to be a tutor, to grab us by the hand and to take us to the cross, to be an x-ray, to show us that we're broken and we cannot save ourselves in and of our own strength. We need someone to come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It was meant to take us to the cross. That's what it was meant to do. So, Paul also says that it grew us up, that it matured us, that it taught us the elementary principles of the world. Why do we not unhitch from the Old Testament? Because read the first couple chapters of Genesis and you read just the reality that God's created. If you, we, we walked through this in our equip classes this semester, but you can't get out of the first couple chapters of Genesis and you see who God is, who humanity is, how God created the world. You see our fundamental problem of sin. You see God's justice, but also his mercy. You see the order of creation. You see all the fundamental things about God. That the law of God was meant to, to show us how God has created the world. It's meant to grow us up into maturity. 
and it's meant to lead us to the cross. Um, Psalms 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And later on, he says, more to be desired are they than gold, that we love the law, but we don't view it as, as the means to earn God's love. It never can. We can't earn God's love by works of the law. And this is the fundamental, fundamental issue in the book of Galatians. And if you missed the past two weeks, essentially the, the one tweet summary is Paul has been pleading with the Galatians to turn back like a father pleads for his children. He says, I had birth pains then, essentially that I was in pain trying to get you, trying to bring life to you in the gospel. And he says, and now I have them again because I feel like you're turning away. I was in pain then to bring you the gospel and I'm in pain now because you're being actively deceived. That these Judaizers had crept into the Galatian churches and said, hey, 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 it's not just faith in Jesus. Jesus wasn't enough. Now you've got to do it. The first heresy in all of Christendom and all of Christianity was that faith alone can't save you. It's faith plus works and Gentiles and pagans like you and me have to become Jewish. We have to add the law. And this is what Paul has been getting at and now he's going to give them a chance to respond. He's been pleading with them. He said, what's happened to you? I love you. I wish I could be there with you. I wish my tone could change when I see you. And now he's gonna give them a chance to respond and he says this in verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? And he's gonna give them this chance. He said, anyone who disagrees with me, do you not understand what the law is saying? He's, he's already said this in Galatians. You ethnic descendants of Abraham, you think you have a high view of the law, but you actually don't. You have a very low view of the law because you can't obey it or because you think you can't obey it. It's actually a pretty low bar if you think you can jump over it pretty easily. You who think you know much about Abraham actually don't know what Abraham was pointing to. The promise of Abraham and the blessing of Abraham wasn't based on works. Abraham believed God, faith, and it was accounted to him or accredited to him as righteousness. That Paul says that the gospel was preached to Abraham, that this blessing would come to Abraham and to his offspring, singular, not offsprings. And Paul says that this offspring that God was referring to is Jesus Christ that Abraham was given the gospel all the way back in Genesis 12, that it's gonna be a free gift, no works required. And Paul, you might've noticed this throughout the book of Galatians, Paul has used lots of different terms for the, for the law interchangeably. Um, he's used the word law, he's used commandments, he's used law of Moses. Sometimes he just says Moses because Moses was the author, he was the one that the law was given to. Moses, sometimes he says Sinai, as we'll see in our chapter today. All of these terms just refer to works of the law. If you think about law, commandments, Moses, the Torah, the old covenant, as we'll see today as well, all of these words are just being used interchangeably to talk about obeying the works of the law. Sometimes when you hear the word law, it's referring to the entire Old Testament. Sometimes it's referring to just Exodus and Leviticus. Sometimes it's referring to the 10 commandments. But what we need to know is that essentially it's referring to being saved by your works. Anytime Paul mentions the law and he says, you listen to the law. He says, you who desire to be back under the law, trying to win your salvation based on your performance, 
Do you not listen to the law? And he says this, for it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. And Paul is going to take them back to the law. And he's already taken them back to Abraham once or twice. He's going to do it again. He's already told us that it was a free gift of God's grace, but now he's going to tell us about Abraham's two sons. And some of you might not even know the story, so we're gonna fly through it quickly, but I want you to make sure that you're aware of this story because Paul's going to pick it apart and tell us that it's actually the gospel on display from the book of Genesis. The gospel is all over the Old Testament, all over the book of Genesis, if we just have the eyes to see it. And Paul's going to show us a not-so-common example of the gospel from a not-so-common story in the book of Genesis. So if you remember, all the way back in Genesis 12, God gives Abram a promise. No works required. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to turn you into a nation. I'm going to give you a land. And he makes that promise in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 18, and it's the same promise. But I want to start in Genesis 15 because this promise was that Abram would turn into a nation, meaning that he would have children, that he would have descendants. And it says this in Genesis 15, starting in verse one. It'll be on the screen. You're welcome to turn there and flip along with, you, with me if you want because we'll be here for just a minute. Um, but it says this, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It says, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So Abram's kind of freaking out and going, Lord, you're promising me all of this inheritance, but I don't even have a child. I don't even have an, a, a physical, biological heir to give it to. According to our customs, it's gonna go to this person in my house. And what does he say? I'm childless. And Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And here's Abram. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And some time passes, and we see in Genesis chapter 16, Abram's wife starts to doubt this promise. Her name was Sarai, or Sarah, her name gets changed in a couple chapters, but it says now Sarai, in chapter 16, Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children from her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, um, her husband, as a wife. So 10 years had gone by since God made this promise. Abram and his wife, 10 years ago, God promised. And I, want, I don't want us to, to buy into the, the idea that um, just for these last 15 years or so that Sarai was barren. They clearly would have had children long before now if she was able. She was barren for her entire life. And God shows up to her and gives her this promise, hey, you're gonna have a child. And from your descendants, all the nations are gonna be blessed. And she's going, I'm 75 years old. You tell me I'm gonna have a child? You, you said this 10 years ago. And then, then like all of us do, they start to think, okay, well, maybe the problem is us. 
Maybe we've done something wrong. Maybe, maybe we need to fix it. So what do they do? They, they strive. They, they, they try, their, based on their own efforts, their own wisdom, their own merit, they try and go and, and force God's hand in his plan. She says, I've got a servant. Her name's Hagar. Why don't you try to have a child with her? And she gives Hagar to Abram. And Abram took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to Abram. He went into Hagar, she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you, or between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And the angel found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they, not, they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you're pregnant and you shall bear a son. This is Abram's first son. You shall call his name Ishmael because, listen to this, the Lord has listened to your affliction. That in the midst of all this chaos, Sarai can't have a child. Hagar has one instantly. Everybody's mad. Hagar flees and the Lord shows up and says, I see you in your affliction. I see you in all of this chaos. He says, you're gonna have a son. Name him Ishmael, verse 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. What a description. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. And this is so fascinating. Hagar, this slave woman who's on the run because she's being treated with contempt by Sarai, gets visited by the angel of the Lord, which many think is a pre-incarnate Christ, and she's the only human in scripture that is um, accredited with ascribing a name to God. El Roy, the God who sees me. And God says, I see your affliction. And she looks at him. She, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bear Laha Roy, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore himself Ishmael to Abram. So 10 years ago, Abraham gets this problem. 86 years old, he has this first child. And regardless, and it's not the, the direct point of the text. But for those of you in here who feel like the Lord doesn't see you, who have a desire, even on Mother's Day, for God to just acknowledge you and your suffering and see you, please hear the word of the Lord. He sees you. And he's about to say he hears you. And I don't want to misinterpret this text or misapply this text and, and to preach it as a guarantee that you're going to get the answer that you're longing for. But as we said earlier, you can hope in Christ. You can hope in God. He sees your affliction. And we would want nothing more than to join you. I, I pray that we all walk out of here with hope from this story, that we see that God brings life from dead things, that he brings children from barren wombs, that God can do what he wants to do. Nothing is impossible for him. 
but he sees her in her affliction. And they have this son. His name is Ishmael. Abram's 86 at this point. And you move into Genesis 17, and now it opens with Abram's 99 years old. 13 more years have gone by. No biological child for Sarah. Can you imagine the pain? Lord, do you see me? Do you hear me? Do you see my affliction? She's Abram's 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abraham or Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And God said to Abram or Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be your name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall I be born? Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to, to God, and here's Abram's plea. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, choose Ishmael. Don't put us through any more of this pain. Don't make us another promise and make us wait 15 more years. Just work through Ishmael. We cannot take it anymore. And what does God say? He says, no. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him, an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. But here's what I want you to hear, verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. And some of you in the, in the brokenness and the pain of today, you need to hear those words. That God, although, and I'm not saying he's given you a no. I'm not the Holy Spirit. This text isn't prescriptive for you and for your life and your future. But I want you to hear that even when God says no, or if he says not right now, he says, I hear your every prayer. I can hear you, I see your pain, I see your affliction, and I love you. And I've given you everything that could satisfy your heart and my son. Do not hope in the next thing you want me to do. Hope in what I've already done in Christ. Find your hope there. But he says, I hear you. And he says, behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. This is talking about Ishmael. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So now we have a time. Next year, it's happening. Well, Sarah happens to hear this. And in Genesis 18, it says, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. And it says this, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She's barren. Verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself. Abram hears the promise, he laughed. She hears the promise, she laughs. There's no way. This is a joke. She says, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, she's talking about her husband there, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for me? I'm the God of the universe. I spoke creation into existence. I bring life from dead things. Out of nothing, I bring the things that are. 
I awaken dead souls to life in a moment. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I stop the wind and the waves. I cast out demons. Is anything too hard for our God? Then he says this, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. I just think that's funny. In Genesis 21, here comes Isaac. The Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old. As God had commanded him, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Now the first two laughters were pretty negative. And now she has this child, she sees the faithfulness of God and she says, God has restored laughter to me again. God has given me laughter once again. What a gift from the Lord. Nothing is impossible for him. See the faithfulness of God, see what God can do. Our prayer is that you walk out of here holding on to hope if motherhood is something you long for because God can do the impossible and we'd love to pray that alongside with you. But I would be misleading you if I said that this text was promising it or guaranteeing it for you. That would be the cruelest thing I could do for you today. But what's ironic about this whole thing is the name Isaac means to laugh. That Abram gets this promise and he laughs Sarah gets this promise and she laughs and then Isaac is finally born and his name is to laugh and she says, God has restored laughter to me again. And then he says, she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children yet I've born him a son in his old age and this is where the conflict happens and this is what Paul's gonna get into. It says the child grew and was weaned and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian whom she had born Abraham laughing So she said to Abraham, cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But but God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he's your offspring." So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. And some of you are like, what in the world does that have to do with Galatians? What does that have to do with the gospel? Well, Paul's about to tell us. So he says that Abram's had two sons and we just looked at the story. The two sons of Abraham, one from Hagar, one from Sarah. And if you look at verse 23, he says, the son of the slave, the son of Hagar, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. What does he mean by that? Both children were flesh and bone, right? They're both humans. What he's saying here is Ishmael was born according to human effort. He was born according to human works. He was born according to Abraham and Sarah saying, we've got to force God's hand. We've got to do this ourselves. We've got to to make the promise happen based on our energy and our effort and our works. 
That's what he means by he was born according to the flesh. It was Abraham and Sarah saying, we've got to take matters into our own hand. We've got to save ourselves. We've got to make this promise happen based on our works. That's what he's talking about here. They were, he was born according to the flesh, their striving, their effort, their energy. But then he says this, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. How was Isaac born? It wasn't anything that Abraham and Sarah did. In fact, it was in spite of everything that they did. It was the word of the Lord that brought life to a dead womb. It was the word of the Lord that brought a child from a barren womb. It was a free gift of God, wholly received by faith. No works required. One was born by flesh, by works, by striving. One was born by a free gift of God, trusting in the promise. That's what he's referring to. Two children, one of the flesh, one of works, Isaac, one of promise. And then he says this, he was a gift from God. Verse 24, Paul says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So Paul says, hey, this whole narrative in Genesis can be interpreted as an allegory. Now, what in the world is an allegory? An allegory is a story that has a, a literal meaning, but each of the characters and the symbols and the objects also represent something else that has kind of a bigger meaning. Does that make sense? Uh, one of a common example of an allegory is the movie Inside Out. Anybody seen the movie Inside Out? Made it up there? That's what I get for throwing a graphic in last minute. I'm glad it worked. Um, if on, on, on the surface, the movie Inside Out is about these characters who are trying to capture these core memories to save the girl that they love, right? To, to, to keep her memories intact, to save all of those things. But when you look deeper at the, the movie Inside Out, it's actually an allegory that, that each of these characters represents an emotion and it's, it's communicating a bigger meaning that all of our emotions have their certain place, their appropriate place. And when they're suppressed or when they're not expressed appropriately, our behavior gets really out of whack, doesn't it? That every single one of those emotions is given from God and they're, they're meant to be expressed appropriately and not suppressed. So it's this story, but each of the characters and symbols and objects represent something bigger and has a bigger meaning. Um, the most common Christian allegory is the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Maybe some of you have read it. Um, they have a kid's version. I would highly encourage you to read the adult version, but then to read the, the kid's version to your children. And it's a story, um, old story. John Bunyan wrote the story about a man named Christian who was born in the city of destruction, and he has this burden on his back that he can't get off. And he meets a man named Evangelist and he tells him about a celestial city and how he can get to a place where there is no more burdens. And he tells him, here's how you get there. The, this man named Evangelist says, you walk down this narrow road and there's a narrow gate that you gotta get to. So he starts walking towards the narrow gate and he meets a man named Interpreter and Interpreter tells him, here's where the cross is. He points him to the cross and Christian gets to the cross and the burden falls off his back. And that's just the first couple minutes of the story. And then the rest of the story is, is, it's an allegory of the Christian life. It's you and me born in sin, conceived in iniquity with this burden that we can't get off ourselves. And someone comes and evangelizes to us and points us towards the narrow road and we meet someone who gives us the gospel, gives us the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. 
and they point us to the cross. And when we get to the cross, the burden of sin falls off. And the rest of the book is, is after salvation, is all, all of the characters and all of the situations that a Christian runs into in their life. It's a beautiful story. I would highly encourage you to read it. But it's an allegory. It's, it's a story that on the surface just looks like a, a, a fun story, but all of the characters represent something bigger. It has a bigger meaning. And Paul says that this story of Ishmael and Isaac, of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar has a bigger meaning than what we just read literally on the page. Now, we gotta be careful, though. Paul is not saying that every passage in the Bible is an allegory, all right? I really wanna guard against this. This is probably, I would say, the most common false teaching vehicle of our world today, of, of Christendom today, is using out, turning every Bible story into an allegory where we just insert ourselves into every story and every character you know, represents our opposition. We see this most common in uh, David and Goliath, right? Where we're David and every, you know, my debt is Goliath or uh, my broken relationship is Goliath and I just gotta go and take down this thing in my way. David and Goliath is not an allegory for us. It's not. And many false teachers, you wanna know a, a kind of a subtle sign of a false teacher is they will only teach stories in the Bible. They'll teach narratives. They spend a lot of time in Old Testament narrative or just in the gospel narratives because when I tell you a story, I can make the people and the objects represent whoever I want them to as I tell you a story, which is why we have to be careful when we read the scriptures and we exegete them, when we draw the meaning out of them. But many false teachers will just tell you stories and make the different people and different characters represent different things. And God's gonna calm the storm in your life, guaranteed, because Jesus calmed the storm in the Gospels. And if he doesn't, it's because you didn't have enough faith. All of those kind of wicked, deceitful things. So Paul is not saying that every passage in the Bible is an allegory and you just gotta go and ascribe different meanings to different objects and people. It's not what he's saying. But he's saying this one is. And we can know it is because Paul, just like the Old Testament writers were carried along by the Holy Spirit, Paul was as well. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is inspired by God, Old Testament and New Testament. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but anytime a New Testament writer interprets an Old Testament passage in the scriptures, then you can trust that that's the meaning of the passage because the Holy Spirit had them write exactly what he wanted them to write. So Paul says, this is an allegory. And this is what he says. These women, Hagar and Sarah, they represent two covenants. One from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So these two women represent the two covenants of the Bible. Your Bible is split up into two covenants. We use the term testament, but the word testament means covenant. That your, your Bible is split up into the old covenant and the new covenant. And what Paul is saying is that these two women represent these two covenants. One's by works. This is the Old Testament. This is the Old Covenant. Here's the law of God that we, you and I can't obey, which is why Paul says that they are producing children for slavery. This woman is representing, if you're trying to save yourself by your own energy, by your own works, then she represents, her son Ishmael represents the covenant of works, bearing children for slavery. Mount Sinai refers to the law, refers to works once again. It's, it's the mountain where God gave his people the law. But he says this in verse 25. Now Hagar 
is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So he says, if you're trying to be saved by your works, you're a descendant of Hagar. You're, you're still under the bondage of the law. Paul said over and over again that if you're still trying to win God's love by your performance, by your works, you are enslaved to the law because you can't obey it. And he says, she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, to current Jews who still think that they're going to be saved by their obedience to the law. But he says this, but the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, Mount Zion, she is free and she is our mother. He's talking about Sarah here. She represents the new covenant of God's grace. He says, she's the free woman. He says, for it's written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, and you who are not in labor, uh, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And Paul quotes Isaiah 54 here. Uh, we'll save that um, in just a couple minutes for the end. But then he says this. He, he, he shows that the Old Testament was crying out, that the, that the barren one would have um, a vast number of children. And he says, now you brothers, you Galatians, you are like Isaac. You're the children of the promise. So he's saying these two women represent, it's an allegory of showing. One is trying to save yourself by works and one is trying to be saved by the promise of God, the free gift of God. One produces slavery if you're still trying to obey the law. One produces freedom. And he says, now if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are like Isaac. You are children of the promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. And Paul says, hey, here's what's happening. Ishmael persecuted Isaac, resentful. God even told Hagar that he was gonna be this way, his wild donkey who has conflict and affliction with all who's around him and his own family. But he persecuted Isaac. And he says, it's happening today. It was happening in Paul's day. What's he saying here? Those that think that they're saved by their own efforts are always going to, to persecute and look down on those that are saved by grace. The legalists will always stick their nose up and look down on the people that, that can't make it look like they're obeying the law. They'll always look down and persecute you. And he says, it's happening now. Why? These Judaizers are preying on you. They're saying you have to obey the law. The affliction is still happening. But he says this in verse 30. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So one last little bit of allegory here. Paul says, cast out. Just like Ishmael and Hagar had to leave, God was not punishing them. In fact, we see all throughout the Genesis narrative, God says, I see you, I hear you, I see your affliction, I'm gonna bless your son, he's also gonna be a nation, but God from the very beginning, what Paul is communicating is from the very beginning of the Bible, God has been showing us it's always going to be by faith in the promise. I'm not using the son who was born by your own effort, by your own works. In my common grace, I'm gonna send him out, I'm gonna make him a nation, I'm gonna multiply him, I'm gonna be gracious to him, but I can't use him because salvation, deliverance is always going to be by the promise. And when you have those who think they're saved by works and those who think they're saved by faith together, it just doesn't work. It's the Hatfields and the McCoys. It's the Corleones and the Barzinis, right? It just doesn't work. It's the Bulldogs and the Rebels. 
You can't have a, a group of people who think that they're saved by works and that they're saved by faith. You're just not gonna get along. The legalists and the rebels are just gonna look down on those who think it's a free gift. The rebel says there's no way that you can earn it or deserve it. And we say, yeah, we know. The legalist says you haven't done enough to earn it or deserve it. It just doesn't work. And Paul says that just like they were cast out, he says, cast out the false teaching from among you. Kick those Judaizers out. Just like Ishmael had to go. If, if, if this message had a title, it would be the Ishmael's gotta go. Kick out the false teaching. And what that means for us is we're not kicking anybody out um, unless you're coming in with a false gospel and you're praying on the, the Judaizers weren't just lost people um, who were genuinely interested in learning about God. They were praying on young believers with a false gospel. And Paul says they gotta go. This is the role of an elder at this church to protect the gospel and to remove people who are preying on young believers with a false gospel. But Paul says, it's gotta go. Why? Because it has always been by faith alone in the promise. These two women were displaying that from the very beginning, God was always going to work by faith alone, not by works. And I'll be gracious, Hagar, poor girl was just obeying her master and obeying what they asked her to do. And she was afflicted for it and kicked out for it. But God says, I see your affliction. I'm not punishing you. I love you. I just, I am only going to work by the free gift of my grace, not by man's works. So he gives them a place, but he says, it's always going to be by the promise. Here's the gospel as we close. And I know I need to close. The gospel is this that God brings life from barren places. He does. Human striving cannot get you salvation. Salvation comes from believing the promises of God and the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. God makes a way where there's no way. God brings dead souls to life. It's what he's done in all of us who are in Christ. He gave us, those who are dead in our sins, life, by the promise of his word, not by works. How does he do it? You'll notice that Paul quoted Isaiah chapter 54, which is this beautiful chapter in Isaiah that talks about this eternal covenant of peace. The first verse talks about how life will come from barren places. And if you look at verse 10, it says, the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. You're gonna have peace forever. Later, it says your children are gonna be taught by the Lord and they're gonna have peace. There's gonna be no terror, no sin, no striving, that there's going to be an eternal covenant of peace. How in the world do you and I get to experience Isaiah 54 because Jesus took Isaiah 53. The reason that you and I get this eternal covenant of peace is because Jesus Christ took everything that we deserve in Isaiah 53, which says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. This is the good news of the gospel. As we get Isaiah 54, because Jesus took Isaiah 53. If you're in here this morning and you still think that you can be saved by your own performance, Paul would tell you this morning, you are a slave of Ishmael. 
You're a, you're, you're a child of the slave woman. And the good news of the gospel is you can walk out of here a child of the free woman. And this whole story is telling you, you can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's a free gift that you receive. It's a gift of grace received by faith. The thing I've been thinking about this week is um, just like Ishmael was cast out, um, Matthew 7, Chris brought it up two weeks ago, tells us that at the end of time, when, when we meet Jesus, there's gonna be people that still think it's by their own works and just like Ishmael, they're gonna be cast out. And he's gonna say, depart from me, I never knew you. When you stand before God and you start talking about your own performance, he's gonna say, it's not based on your works, it was never good enough. The beautiful thing about heaven is that there's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation before the throne of the Lord, and not a single person, and all of the millions and billions of people there will think that they deserve to be there. Not a single one. Not a single one will stand before the throne and think that they deserve it. Because the gospel is we don't. And God's given us a free gift of his grace. And we receive it. We believe the promise in Jesus Christ. And you can walk out of here. You can walk in here a child of a slave. And you can walk out of here a child of the free woman just by believing in the free gift of God's grace in the gospel today. And for the rest of us, Paul says, cast out the Ishmaels, not the people, but the false gospels, the false gospels that you and I believe all the time. They're prevalent. Cast them out. Don't believe those lies. Remember the gospel. We forget it often. Paul says, remember it. Cast Ishmael out. Not because he's done anything wrong. God's still gracious, but it's always gonna be by faith in the promise. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we're grateful for your mercy and your grace. And God, as we close today, I pray that we would sing as people who have been given a gift that we don't deserve, that heaven will be your children, your sons and daughters ransomed by your blood, and not a single person will stand before their throne with their chest up high talking about their own behavior. But, but the anthem of heaven will be Christ and Christ crucified, that we will point to you, that you've satisfied us, that you've done what we could never do, that you lived the life, you died the death, you paid the price, you shed your blood, you get the glory. So God, until then, help us to be a church who continues to believe in the promise. God, who's diligent to guard and protect and encourage one another with the true gospel and to lovingly confront one another when we obey the false ones. To the glory of your name, keep us, protect us, guard us, and God, use us just like the law, I pray that people would look at, at the believers who, who trust in the gospel, just like the law was designed to do, that they would look at us and say, how do you have joy when you can't have a child? How do you have joy in the midst of this suffering? How do you have joy in the midst of this trial? And we respond with, let me introduce you to him. The reason that I can still have joy, the reason that I can rejoice in my sorrow, the reason that I can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. His name is Jesus. So God, help us to be a people who treasure the gospel more than anything else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.